Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank and let's get cracking with some more recent events. So this is kind of, a lot of this is actually going to follow on from a pretty lengthy <laughs> and pretty intense read through that I did last week of uh, some of the wording of the um, proposed language for the Intelligence Authorization Act uh, from the Bill S4503. And there was also other developments with various other bits of, of legislative language uh, that have been going through. The American political system, the way all this works, is pretty confusing. And you know, I'm trying to sort of get my head around all of that because I do think as things relate to the, the US you know, disclosure of, of process of, of being more transparent with what they know about UAP, it's pretty important, or at least I think it's pretty important to try and keep up with what's actually going on with all of that and try to understand it and, you know, get my head around the legal process as best I can because you hear all these different terms and especially being from the UK, some of it, you know, is not things that I'm familiar with. So I've really been trying to get to get to the bottom of it more so than I did last year because last year there was a lot of the same things going on and I kept up, up to date with it but this year I've tried to go a bit of a step further and delve into it a bit more so there's going to be some uh, some talk about that a couple of the other things that relate to what I talked about last week a few things that I can hopefully clear up a little bit on that side of things um, and I'm also going to be talking about the Galileo Project, the first year of the Galileo Project, and the founding of the AARO Arrow, um, office as well. So those are kind of the, the key main points I'm going to be talking about today. And also um, keep a lookout as well, because over the next couple of weeks, we've got some other episodes that are, that are going to be pretty good ones. I think we've got um, Chris Sharp from Liberation Times and uh, Dave Smethurst is going to be uh, making a return appearance once again. And we're going to be discussing some of this legislation uh, in the States and also the, the founding of this Arrow office and what it means and the people who are involved and all that kind of thing. And there's also going to be another round table, which is going to be coming out as well over the next couple couple of weeks and I've got a couple of interesting interviews lined up as well so um, some exciting stuff in the pipeline we'll see uh, how it all goes so getting stuck into these recent events then so as I said once again some pretty big developments over the last week or so particularly involving the US uh, disclosure side of things the, the government transparency uh, side of things so last week I did this episode on the wording proposed in this s4503 bill and that was a very extensive kind of probably quite intense uh read through of, of uh, 30 odd pages of this particular document and a pretty in-depth analysis and um you know the, the idea of that was that it was the bill from the senate intelligence committee for the intelligence authorization act for the fiscal year 2023 and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because a few people asked me about like what exactly that is relating to other things and whatnot. And I'll try and clear all that up as we go through the episode. But another thing that's happened, which is kind of linked, but not the same thing, even though it contains almost the exact same wording 
which is where why this is all so confusing. So various news outlets started reporting on this and a lot of people were talking about it as well on Twitter and whatnot about the House Intelligence Committee had just approved the FY23 Intelligence Authorization Act wording and there was a press release um, on this as well from the House Intelligence Committee uh, website and that said the following, quote, Today, the House Intelligence Committee approved the Fiscal Year 2023 Intelligence Authorization Act, authorising funding for initiatives that will improve the IC's ability to collect data on hard targets, modernise the intelligence community's use of emerging technology, recruit and retain top talent to the IC, and strengthen congressional oversight. The measure was passed through a bipartisan voice vote and now heads to the House floor for final passage, unquote. So after the, the little bit that I just read out, there was also a, a list of kind of the key points in the Intelligence Authorization Act proposed wording, because obviously a lot of it's about things that are totally unrelated to UAP. Um, but later on, there was a paragraph which said, um, quote, shining a historical light on UAPs. This year, the Intelligence Committee delivered on a promise to hold the first public hearing on unidentified aerial phenomena in more than half a century. The hearing included newly declassified information about UAPs, including never-before-seen video footage and data from subject matter experts. In order to support the work to unravel the UAP mystery, the 2023 IAA directs the GAO to study historical classified information that may further the broader IC effort to understand and explain UAPs, including the implications they may have for our national security, unquote. So in this particular bill that has been um, proposed here, the, the wording in this particular bill, it, it contains a pretty hefty passage, about four pages, which talks about the GAO being instructed to do a historical study going all the way back to 1947 and that is basically four pages lifted straight out of the s4503 which i was talking about recently so if you if people have been listening to what i said there and then you've also kind of seen this press release you might actually think that it's the same bit of actual wording you know which it kind of is but it's in a slightly different thing so, again, we'll come back to this and clear it up as we go, but it's quite clear from reading that that the House of Representatives, you know, Congress, is basically not willing to accept this 2004 and onwards approach that has been, you know, taken in the in the past or has been, you know, they've tried to put it forward as, as that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on 2004 to, to present day and so on. And it's pretty clear that, in, in the congressional hearings that took place recently that there was a lot of unanswered questions around certain very significant historic cases such as Malmstrom Air Force Base and uh, the Wilson documents and even you know Roswell and crash retrieval alleged programs and things like that. And this basically looks to be a bit of a formalisation of those questions actually being written into law to look into that and create a, basically a report and 
well, what I was thinking, and I know a lot of people have messaged me about this as well, as I said earlier, so let's let's clear it up. Let's dig into that and crack on with it and get it cleared up once and for all. Hopefully, anyway, we'll try our best. So what's the difference between the S4503 that I read through in great detail the other day and this HR8367 wording, which appears to be the same basic thing, you know, it's like the same as just a chunk taken out of the S4503 bill. So, as I said, you know, not being American, not being in the know about the ins and outs of these things, I was a bit confused as well. You know, I did a bit of a, a real deep dive into into the S4503 for about two and a half hours the other day. If you've not heard that, it's a bit of a lengthy listen. It might not be for everybody, that one. Very, very detailed because uh, there's a lot to get through in there. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're into that kind of thing, you know, dis- dissecting a document and going through every little minute detail from beginning to end, is there's a two-part episode that I put out last week about that. But this, this basically, this episode I'm doing today kind of summarises it in a bit more of a concise way, I guess you could say. So anyway, I did this this two-part episode about that particular proposed language for the Intelligence Authorization Act. And then a few days later, you see another document, which is the HR8367, which has a different number attached to it but very similar wording in fact almost identical wording so I, I basically reached out to a few people who were very well up on the american legal processes and cleared it up for my own understanding and hopefully i can sort of pass that on to you guys now as well so i think probably the first and most important point is the s in s4503 refers to senate so it's s for senate and the HR in HR8367 refers to House of Representatives, HR. So th- th- that's something that I, I didn't know. As I say, not being from the States, perhaps that's common knowledge if you are from the States, as I know a lot of my listeners are, but I'm just including that just in case anybody didn't didn't clock onto that. So e- each the Senate and the House of Representatives have their own intelligence committees and each comes up with a proposal for the Intel Intelligence Authorization Act, and then they have to kind of go through various processes to eventually become, you know, signed into law and get approved uh, in the end. So the the Senate Intelligence Committee had already come up with an S four five zero three bill. And then what happened was when the House of Representatives Intelligence Authorization Act was drafted. So this is the House um, bill rather than the Senate bill. The wording was basically put together for this HR 8367. And what they did is they just basically took some pages from the existing wording in the S4503 and incorporated that into, into their version. Now, obviously, this can seem a bit confusing because you've got two different bills that are both going on and they've both got similar wording, but it's diff- slightly different and things like that. But essentially, the, the S4503 is, is basically continu- continuing intact on its path. It's not being, like, cut down because... You know, there's, you could think that because the, the S4503, 30-odd pages of UAP wording, and then this HR8367 comes along, and now there's only four pages. You know, has it been chopped down and, like, you know, minimised? Like, what happened to the full version of it? But actually, the thing is, and the important point here, is the S4503 is actually continuing intact on its path towards being, you know, fully confirmed and, and written into law. 
And now the HR8367 is actually continuing on a parallel path. So just to clarify, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee had proposed the full language being used in the S4503, and then some of that was taken for use in the House Committee HR8367 bill with some slight alterations. So the S4503 is continuing on like a separate track and remains intact in terms of its UAP language. And now the HRA367 will continue on its own path alongside uh, the, the progress of the S4503. And it eventually they all kind of reach the same destination and become the final wording for the Intelligence Authorization Act. So that's basically the difference between these two bills. And the next question to ask is, how does it progress from here? I mean, how do they actually eventually end up getting signed into law sort of thing? So I wondered, does the NDAA form like an umbrella that the Intelligence Authorization Act actually comes under? Is the Intelligence Authorization Act confirmed and signed into law separately? Well, actually, even that is a bit of a grey area. So the NDAA is what they call a must-pass bill. And an NDAA has been enacted for the past 61 consecutive years. And in some recent years, the entire Intelligence Authorization Act has been wrapped into the NDAA at a point during this process. The, the Intelligence Authorization Act can be carried into law as, as cargo in the NDAA, so to speak. But that doesn't always happen. Last year, in fact, there was a disagreement among House and Senate Intelligence Committee members that was nothing to do with UAP, and that resulted in the Intelligence Authorization Act not being in the NDAA that was enacted on December the 27th, 2021. But the disagreement was eventually resolved, and the Intelligence Authorization Act was enacted on March the 15th, 2022. So it's a weird one. In some cases, the Intelligence Authorization Act can end up in the NDAA and get signed into law that way. Other times, the NDAA has to be signed into law first, and then there's wranglings that continue about the Intelligence Authorization Act, and that goes through separately. So there's no exact process that this follows. It, it can vary a little bit. The main thing is, is that all of these UAP bills with proposed language are still in play. But there's many more steps along the process to see it all fully signed off kind of thing. And we just have to keep an eye on it really and see how it all pans out. The reason I wanted to read through the S4503 is because that's a very in-depth version of the wording. So even if some of that doesn't make it into the final language, it's still interesting. I, I mean, from my point of view, I found it interesting to, to read through it to see what's being proposed. And I'm not going to keep on reading through documents as the process goes along because obviously it's just too much to do and there's so much change that can happen along the way. But uh, I thought that was interesting to go through in, in quite a bit of detail because it's so, you know, it's the full thing sort of thing. 31 pages of what they're thinking of doing. And as I say, we'll c compare and contrast when it actually goes through and, and see what makes it into the final wording. But I've heard this described as kind of like multiple train tracks all heading to the same destination. And at one point along the way, all of these things kind of become, you know, incorporated into the same thing. But there are multiple paths all leading to that final destination. It's quite a confusing process, really. But hopefully I've been able to clarify a little bit of the differences there. Um, anybody who wants to go and, 
check out my uh, breakdown of the S4503, which is the Senate bill. Um, you can check that out with the previous episodes on the podcast. As I say, not for the faint-hearted, that one bit of an in-depth, real focusing in on the details type of episode, but anyone who likes that kind of thing can check it out. Anyway, so that's basically that. So now, as well as the S4503, we've also got this house um, proposed language as well, which is also working its way through. And on top of that, we've also got the proposed wording for the NDAA. So there's a lot going on, and uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on that, see how it all plays out. Okay, so moving on from that then. The founding of this Arrow office... So you may remember last year legislation was passed, uh, again going back to the same kind of thing we were just talking about really, the legislation was passed last year as part of the NDAA, which is the National Defence Authorisation Act by the way, I don't think I've clarified that so far in this episode, so just in case anyone was wondering, that's what it is, and the, the language that was actually passed as part of the NDAA last year required the foundation of a central UAP office. And that was basically to take over from what was originally the temporary UAP task force, which was essentially in place to take over from what was originally ATIP. So there's been a bit of a long and winding road to get to this current point. The specifics of this office and what it was required to do was all laid out by an amendment to the NDAA, which was spearheaded by Senator Gillibrand and also supported by uh, Galejo and Marco Rubio. So it was, of course, a bipartisan effort, and the wording within this amendment was designed to get to the bottom of this mystery, or at least get a bit further along the path to get into the bottom of this mystery, and address the national security concerns around UAP, which appear to be operating within sensitive military training areas with impunity and uh, you know certainly posing a, a national security risk however the aoimsg office was basically set up right at the last minute before the gillibrand amendment went through and many speculated that you know it, it was something of a preemptive strike so that the dod basically could propose its own office just before the gillibrand amendment went through so that they could kind of claim oh the existing office will fill all these requirements don't worry about it you don't need a separate office we'll deal with it so that they could basically wrestle control of, of this legislation that was going through by incorporating all of that into the office that they'd already established and obviously this is basically the effort to continue from where the AOIMSG sort of left I say left off but what what's the AOIMSG actually done it's a bit vague really but anyway going to the actual um, documents released which the memorandum for senior pentagon leadership uh, this was actually on july the 15th 2022 and this is the memorandum which covers the establishment of the all domain anomaly resolution office so essentially to, to explain what what's going on with it really so we'll go through that because it gives a fair amount of information about what this new office is going to do what it carries on from etc just quickly it's not that long of a document so says 
On November 23rd, 2021, I directed the Undersecretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security to establish the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronisation Group, AOIMSG, to synchronise efforts across the Department of Defence and with other federal departments and agencies to detect, identify and attribute objects of interest in special use airspace. Very important point that because special use airspace was essentially all the AOIMSG actually covered. It wasn't just a, a, a really broad uh, net that it was casting. It was mostly focused on training areas, military controlled airspace. Anyway, carrying on reading from it. I also established the Airborne Object Identification Management Executive Council to provide oversight and direction to the AOIMSG. Prior to the establishment of the AOIMSG, the National Defence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022 was enacted with a provision that requires the Secretary of Defence to establish an office in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence with responsibilities that include those that were to be assigned to the AOIMSG. Therefore, following coordination with the DNI, I hereby approve the following amendments to my original direction in Deputy Secretary of Defence Memorandum, Establishment of the AOIMSG. So... And the idea is that this is to meet the DOD requirements in section 1683 of the NDAA for the fiscal year 2022. So it's clearly saying there that um, the AOIMSG itself was designed to fulfill the requirements of the Gillibrand Amendment, essentially, which was part of the NDAA for FY22. And it's now saying that these following amendments to the, to that original thing that was put through there with the AOIMSG, um, these amendments and changes and essentially expansions are to meet the DOD requirements, which actually specifically covers section 1683 of the NDAA for FY 2022. And uh, the memorandum goes on to say, the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Arrow, will be established to carry out the duties that were to be fulfilled by the AOIMSG. The mission of the AARO will be to synchronise efforts across the department and with other federal departments and agencies to detect, identify and attribute objects of interest in, on or near military installations, operating areas, training areas, special use airspace and other areas of interest and as necessary to mitigate any associated threats to safety of operations and national security. This includes anomalous, unidentified space, airborne, submerged and transmedian objects. Now, very importantly about that is they are still talking about objects of interest in, on or near military installations, operating areas, training areas, special use airspace, etc. So they are specifically there focused on these kind of areas, which is important to point out, I think. The main difference is it now includes anomalous, unidentified space, airborne, submerged and transmedium objects. Hence the name, obviously, all domain is pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? And I think that's just 
a lot of it is really just covering the backs because a lot of this new legislation includes talk about transmedium objects and things like that. I think a lot of people are getting excited that it's saying all domain and like, oh, they're going to cover everything. But really, what you have to remember is that they're doing the bare minimum. Again, this is my opinion, but I think they're doing the bare minimum to just cover their own backs and preemptively cover anything that might come up in future legislation. So they're just casting a wide net with that name, really. The all domain thing is just to cover anything that might come up in future hearings so that they can claim that they've got it covered with this office now maybe i'm being a bit pessimistic there but that's the way that i read that and they are talking about specifically these you know controlled airspace areas basically or you know military installations and operating areas training areas and so forth anyway it carries on the aoi i mean this check this one out the aoi m-e-x-e-c that's a bit of a mouth tongue twister, isn't it? Is renamed the Arrow Executive Council. Well, thank goodness for that. The mission of the Arrow Executive Council will be to provide oversight and direction to the Arrow. Okay, so they've got an oversight council, no problem. And next point is I direct the USDINS to establish the Arrow in coordination with the Director of Administration and Management consistent with section 1683 of the NDAA for FY22 I also direct the Secretary of the Navy to disestablish the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force no later than the date the Arrow is established and to support the orderly transition of the UAPTF including the transfer of any data analysis or relevant material to the Arrow now, the point about that is a few people had said that the UAP task force was supposed to have been disbanded a while back and like it's unusual that they're saying that actually why is the task force still going? I thought the AOIMSG was supposed to have covered that. The problem is though, I think, I mean, again, this is my interpretation of this and my opinion. It could be wrong, but I'm just, I'll throw it out there. I think the AOIMSG has just been so slow getting everything going and it's quite clear that it's basically a failed effort. I mean, in the hearing, they were talking about that when the AOIMSG is up and running, bearing in mind the hearing was in like May, you know, it's only a couple of months ago. They were talking about having the AOIMSG operational by, I think it was June. So bearing in mind, we're only in July now. The AOIMSG never really got going. So I think the point of this thing about the task force there was i've seen a few people saying like what i thought the uap task force ended ages ago when aoimsg took over but the point is there is that the aoimsg never really got off the ground in the first place so i think the task force probably stayed running because they had to kind of you know there had to be somebody that was that was holding the fort whilst the aoimsg got its acting gear and then the fact was the AOIMSG didn't really ever get its acting gear. So the UAP task force was kind of clinging on. But now it's saying in this new uh, memorandum here that when Arrow is established, the UAP task force has to, has to go, basically. Um, we'll see how it all goes, as I say. You know, I'm trying to balance optimism and pessimism. Uh, optimism and realism, I think, is what I'm trying to, do, trying to do here. But anyway, just to conclude on this memorandum, it says, the arrow will serve as the authoritative effort of the unidentified aerial phenomena and UAP-related activities for the DOD. The arrow is the DOD focal point for all UAP and UAP-related activities and may represent the department for such activities as 
to the Interagency Congress Media and Public in coordination with the Assistant Secretary of Defence for Legislative Affairs and Assistant to the Secretary of Defence for Public Affairs. Any DOD component acting on behalf of the UAP Task Force or who has data analysis contracts or other material related to UAP will immediately synchronize their efforts with the Arrow. So essentially just saying Arrow's going to be the you know the, the new guy in town, all the other stuff's gone, fallen by the wayside. Anybody who's been doing stuff that you may have been uh, relating to the UAP task force or, or the AOMSG, now you need to synchronize all those efforts with Arrow. That's going to be the main point that everybody is going to report to. And this memo is signed off by the Deputy Secretary of Defence, Kathleen Hicks. Okay, so there we go. That's that's how they uh, have announced it, and that's how it's been put forth. Um, and there was also a similar uh, memorandum for senior Pentagon leadership, actually from uh, Ronald Moultrie as well. There's not really much, you know, important bits in there. So it's basically just saying that they will establish this office and kind of confirming a lot of the things that were in uh, the previous memorandum that I've read out. But it also just does say the Arrow will leverage Department of Defense capabilities and synchronize with the intelligence community to tackle the unique challenges posed by the presence of anomalous objects across all domains. I will manage the processes to enable the Arrow Executive Council to provide oversight and direction to the Arrow along the following primary lines of effort. 1. Surveillance, collection and reporting. 2. System capabilities and design. 3. Intelligence operations and analysis. 4. Mitigation and defeat. 5. Governance. and 6. Science and technology. And he says, uh, my office will provide necessary administration administrative support to the arrow including facilities management budget contracting human resources security congressional affairs and information technology my office will also advocate for resources to support the operation of the arrow and the execution of the arrow mission across the future year's defense plan and again, it says here, during the transition from the Navy UAP task force to the Arrow, I expect the DOD components to continue to meet their responsibilities for timely reporting of the UAP as they have done to this point. And again, it's talking about the, the transition from the Navy UAP task force to the Arrow. Because, as I said, I think the reason for that, rather than transitioning from the AOIMSG to the Arrow, is because the AOMSG never actually got off the ground and never actually got the wheels turning in the first place. I think they basically got close to the point of getting the AOIMSG going and then thought, actually, do you know what? We're going to have to change the name and change a lot of the, the specifics of this thing anyway. So rather than get it going and then you know cancel it and do something else, let's just change the whole thing, expand it, change the name, and, and we'll move forward with the Arrow office. So... Anyway, there we go. And just to finish off, there's a paragraph I'll quickly read through. And it says, It is vital to our national security and the safety of our military personnel that we maintain awareness of anomalous objects in all domains. We must also keep pace with the development and employment of novel technology by our adversaries. In doing so, we are committed to providing maximum transparency while safeguarding classified information and controlled unclassified information. The establishment of the Arrow is a significant step forward in developing the capabilities and processes that are necessary to achieve these goals. Ronald S. Moultrie, July the 20th, 2022.
And just for clarity, Ronald Moultrie uh, is the individual who was uh, one of the two people brought forward in that hearing uh, a little while ago before the subcommittee. And he is the current official serving as the Under Secretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security as part of the Biden administration. So that's that. So going back to a few of the concerns about the AOMSG originally and the the achingly slow progress, etc., uh, and and essentially what led to be a, a bit of a failed attempt, Chris Sharp's done a recent article in Liberation Times where he states, "quote For months, progress was achingly slow as the DoD continued to implement guidance to ensure that the ill-fated UAP office named AOIMSG met congressional intent." as set out within the National Defence Authorisation Act, NDAA, 2022. Throughout much of this year, AOIMSG's staff numbers have been in the single digits and frustrations have been aroused in Congress due to lack of progress. In April 2022, it was revealed that former uh, Director for Defence Intelligence Gary Reid who had been accused by former ATIP director Lou Elizondo in his IG complaint of obfuscating UAP efforts, was puzzlingly the executive secretary of the AOIMSG before he was eventually ousted, unquote. So I think that pretty well sums up many of the frustrations around this particular area with the AOIMSG and the concerns held by many that it was not really fit for purpose and would not deliver on some of the important questions being asked by the Gillibrand Amendment, especially with, you know, the uh, Gary Reid, the, the exact individual had been, you know, very clearly named by many insiders as being a, a direct cause of a lot of this obfuscation and an and unwillingness to cooperate with calls for increased transparency why on earth would you think that an office with that guy in charge would get us anywhere you know and and there's all the questions about whether or not the the location of the aoimsg actually has the capabilities and resources to fulfill the requirements of the gillibrand amendment as well so overall it was just doomed to fail really i think the aoimsg i mean and the the name obviously is terrible it, they don't necessarily have the resources that they need. They've been dragging their feet. It's just been pretty shocking overall, really, to put it in simple terms. By the way, anybody who is not already aware, Chris Sharp, founder of Liberation Times, absolutely brilliant source for news on these kind of things and definitely worth checking out. So that's liberationtimes.com and you can read the full article that I'm quoting from here. And speaking of quoting from the article, uh, Chris had managed to actually reach out to various very important people when you're talking about this kind of thing, including Lou Elizondo himself. So Lou Elizondo very kindly provided a quote as to what he thinks about this, and that goes as follows, quote, The recent public outreach efforts by Arrow to include using social media outlets is prudent and an effective way to help gain public trust and transparency. I vehemently applaud this effort and hope this gesture represents a new and sincere approach by the US government to provide both accurate and timely information to the American people for which they deserve, unquote. So I think it's safe to say that Lou's cautiously optimistic there. And I think it's also interesting to consider that 
the leader of this Arrow effort has been announced as being Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. And I've heard a lot of mixed thoughts on this, really. Some people seem to suggest that he's extremely highly qualified, which there's absolutely no question that he is extremely highly qualified for this role. Going into a little bit about the actual qualifications as well, according to the sort of like press release that's been that's been uh, provided uh, about Sean Kirkpatrick's appointment to this role, um, it goes into some of his background, some of his qualifications, and it says Dr. Kirkpatrick was asked by USD INS to stand up and lead Arrow in early 2022. So we know this has been, he actually was asked to do this and, and, and was given that role in early 2022. But now here we are in, in basically the end of July and it's only just now been you know formalised as, as such. And um, apparently he's known to, as Dr. K to his staff and team and he brings over two decades of experience and a significant, significant depth of expertise in scientific and technical intelligence, space policy, research and development, acquisitions and operations, specialising in space and counter space mission areas. Then it talks a little bit about his background, which I won't bother going into just now because it's safe to say it's very, very extensive. And um, I, th I suppose most uh, significantly it says, more these more recent background is from 2016 to his current assignment dr kirkpatrick served in a variety of no-fail roles including deputy director of intelligence u.s strategic command director national security strategy national security council deputy director of intelligence and the dni representative for u.s spacecom the U.S. Spacecom Intelligence Enterprise was the fifth organization he has been the IC lead for establishment. His most recent assignment was as chief scientist at the DIA's Missile and Space Intelligence Center. So he's definitely got a pretty strong resume there. And the, the, I've heard quite a few things various people saying that it's extremely positive that he's the one that's in charge of this and you know if you wanted somebody you know in charge of an effort like this he's the one to go to but very importantly and interestingly Lou Elizondo was actually asked about this on the 18th of May or this was published on the 18th of May 2022 on the excellent need to know podcast with Ross Coltart and Bryce Zabel and when I'll actually just play the clip of when Lou was asked about that particular point. And by the way, if anybody has not heard this interview in full, it's really worth checking out. It was just after the congressional hearings and um, Ross Coltart and Bryce Sable were actually joined by Lou Elizondo himself to give his insight as to how it all went. And it was really quite illuminating to hear, you know, Lou Elizondo and considering what he's been involved in in the past and whatnot to hear how he thought that the hearings went. Uh, and also a uh, big shout out to to my friend Dave Smethurst for actually kind of being the one to to remember this particular bit of uh, comment. Now I'll just play the clip and I'll talk about it a bit. My understanding it's, it's Shankar Patrick. Okay. Uh, but um, you know I, that's not formal. That's not for me. That's not official. Let me just caveat that. And is uh, is, is he a good hand? Is he a good hand, Lou? Boy, Ross, you'd have to ask me that, huh? <laughs> I, I believe let's give everybody a fair shake. How about that, right? Let's let's see what they can do. Um, you know, this is part of my frustration. You know, this is why uh, I, I do what I do because I um, I think the people deserve the truth. 
Uh, this is it, is it, was absolutely is it at least good that they finally appointed somebody? Is that is that progress or would yeah. it have been yeah, okay. Yeah, now the problem is they're considering this air trash space junk and, and debris, quadcopters and drones when we're really talking about breakaway technology. So a very interesting clip there. Um and Lou, what you don't see there when you actually listen to that clip as well is that when Rosk asks Lou, is is Sean, Ka- Sean Kirkpatrick a, a safe hand to be in charge of this? Lou kind of grimaces and he doesn't exactly shake his head, but he, you know, he, he definitely doesn't give him a glowing report, just put it that way. Now, I think it is just a case of let's give him the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent, but it's worth bearing in mind that Lou Elizondo isn't so sure about this and, and certainly isn't super positive like some people have, have been about the appointment of this individual. Now, bearing in mind, this was um, way back in May and now we're in the end of July. So obviously Lou Elizondo back then um, you know, was, was giving his, his opinion. There's not really much has changed since then, so I would imagine that, that his, his opinion is, is still the same. But we'll just have to see. Interesting also that he mentions about the fact that they're thinking about debris, quadcopters and drones, space debris, space junk and things like that when we're really talking about breakaway technology. I mean, bearing in mind that he gives that answer as an answer to the question about um, Sean Kirkpatrick's appointment, does that suggest that Lou has an inkling that what Sean Kirkpatrick is going to try and do is is focus on those aspects of it rather than you know openly accepting that this may be some kind of a breakaway technology? It seems like there may be an element of that in what Lou is saying there. But as I say... We just have to, we just have to see how it goes. Really, at the end of the day, I mean, there's definitely mixed opinions about the appointment of Sean Kirkpatrick. No question, he's an extremely, you know, credentialed individual. But mixed messages about whether or not to be optimistic about his appointment, I think, is safe to say at this moment in time. Anyway, going back to the article, um. Just just bearing in mind as well, Lou Elizondo's quote for Liberation Times, which came literally a few days ago, does seem to be quite optimistic and cautiously optimistic, though I think you could say. So he, he is saying he applauds this effort and he hopes that this represents a new and sincere approach by the government to provide you know, accurate and timely information to the American people, which they deserve. But he's not saying he's confident that this will be the nature of the effort. He's saying that he hopes that, that that's what the this effort is going to do. Me too, <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, but we don't know whether or not that's what they're actually going to provide. So we shall see. And um, the proof's going to be in the pudding at the end of the day, as as the old saying goes. So. Going back to Chris's article, the, the article also talks about some interesting and, and similarly kind of cautiously optimistic quotes from both uh, former naval aviator Lieutenant Ryan Graves and Representative Tim Burchett. Now, there are definitely reasons to be cautiously optimistic, as I say, but to be slightly more realistically pessimistic for a minute, 
Yeah, we do have to bear in mind that even though the new Arrow Office is an improvement on what the AOIMSG was attempting to do, again, quoting from the Liberation Times article here, it is still, quote, located within the control of the OUSD INS from the DOD side. This raises concerns due to previous obfuscation coming from the office that led Lou Elizondo to resign. Unquote. So obviously, Lou Elizondo himself has experienced this type of obfuscation and unwillingness to engage with this topic from within that exact office where this effort is going to be housed. You can understand why there would be, you know, a bit of caution on display there. Continuing the quote, quote, Insiders have spoken to Liberation Times regarding concerns about OUSDINS heading up any new UAP effort due to it being a staff oversight organization not equipped to manage operations and analysis. And it is expected that Arrow will incorporate any new responsibilities within its remit if and when newly drafted UAP office language is signed into law. Unquote. So, I think what Chris is saying in the article there is that there is some, you know, definite question marks as to whether or not the location of this office actually has the capabilities to fulfil the requirements being set out in the NDAA and also moving forward, you know, from here, is it going to have the ability to be able to fulfil the new legislation which is currently working through the system now, this is very important as well because these new alterations and expansions to the office, taking it from the AOIMSG to the Arrow, is actually based on the legislation that already went through for the year 2022 and has nothing to do with the new legislation that's currently working its way through the system, as I said a minute ago. Although, you know, when, you, when I say it's got nothing to do with it, perhaps the actual expansion of the Arrow office and the name change it has been done again preemptively to sort of you know expand it to 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 look forward at any new legislation that's working its way through to make sure that they will be able to cl at least claim that they can fulfill those requirements as necessary as well but as i said at the end of the day the proof is going to be in the pudding you know i, I was actually Again, cautiously, but still a bit optimistic about some of the willingness shown by Moultrie at the hearing. I mean, at the, at the, look, there was obvious attempts there to kind of, you know, to 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 gloss over a lot of the important aspects and and the videos that were presented very very questionable. And I would hope that at the next hearing there are a lot more, you know, specific follow up questions asked by the the members of the subcommittee. But at the very least, you can say there was a commitment. To transparency shown by Moultrie at that hearing and let's not forget you know when asked by representative Gallagher at the hearing as whether he would look into Malmstrom Air Force Base the incident that occurred there Moultrie did commit to looking into it you know and, and I guess what I'm saying here is that they're saying some of the right things commitment to transparency you know to not jump to any conclusions before the investigation begins not taking any explanations off the table even a willingness to look into some historic aspects like they're being pushed to basically look into these historic aspects like malmstrom and the wilson documents and things like that what remains to be seen is to what extent we're actually going to see results from that 
And I suppose at this point, it's our job to hold these people accountable if they don't follow through on the promises made. And it's also obviously, I suppose, more to the point, it's it's our job to make sure that we keep up the political pressure because, I mean, I can't go up to, you know, Moultrie and say, hey, pal, how's it going? You know, have you looked into the uh, Malmstrom case yet? But what we can do, or specifically the, the people who live in the States, you can make it clear to your elected representatives, your elected officials, that you want them to follow up on that. And then when there are future hearings, those are the questions that might get asked because that's what we should be asking these people, you know? So at the end of the day, we'll have to wait and see how it all pans out. Definitely some mixed opinions going around about the the Arrow office in general. But still, you know, I, I do always kind of relate it back to, you know, when I first started the podcast, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't have been able to imagine something like this even being a thing. So it is good that we have got some progress, but there's certainly a long way to go as well. Moving on from that then, so the next thing that we're going to delve into is going to be a, a real favourite area of mine to look at, which is something that regular listeners of the show will know all about because it's something that I go on about all the time and I have a very close eye on it, is Avi Loeb's Galileo Project. Now, just a bit of background about Avi Loeb as well. So Abraham commonly known as Avi Loeb, is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University and a best-selling author. He received a PhD in physics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel at age 24. Wrote eight books and over 800 papers on a wide range of topics, including black holes, the first stars, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the future of the universe. Loeb is a former member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House, a former chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies, and a current member of the advisory board for Einstein Visualized the Impossible of the Hebrew University. So as you can see, there's an absolutely incredible resume there and somebody whose credentials cannot be questioned and remarkably somebody, oh, they, they can be questioned, but you know what I mean. He's got a very, very strong track record and uh, a very good CV, you know, as we say here in the UK. I don't know if the CV is a is an American thing as well, but anyway, um, remarkably, this is somebody who's been very extremely are open to considering the possibility of alien visitations essentially to this planet and i say remarkably because of the stigma that does persist not only within the public but also within academia and many consider this to be a very risky topic to take seriously and you know to be open to studying it but however this is not the case with avi Loeb. and avi went on to basically secure several million dollars worth of funding for the Galileo project to kickstart the initial setup of telescope observatory systems form a team of up to this point I believe around a hundred individuals of subject matter experts people from all around the world who can provide expertise to the Galileo project and help it to achieve its goals and as we'll get into um, a few of the reasons why I'm particularly interested in the work of the Galileo project and you know, I've talked a lot on the podcast about it in the past, and now we're coming up to the first year anniversary of the founding of the Galileo Project. 
and um, Avi Loeb has published an article detailing where they're up to and what to expect going forward. So the article is split up into six sections and we'll go through each section and I'm not going to read through the whole thing because it's a very long article uh, but I've just picked out a few important quotes and points that I think would be worth highlighting and I would suggest as always with these kinds of things that you should read the whole article if you find this interesting because it goes into the full detail and you can find that on Avi Loeb's Medium page if you just type in Avi Loeb uh, Medium you'll find it's kind of a blog where he posts articles I'm sure you'll be able to find it quite easily and Avi's actually really quite prolific when it comes to writing articles. There's one, seems like there's one every week. So I really recommend checking them out if you're interested in where the Galileo project's up to and any other related things that Avi tends to write about in his articles. Really fascinating stuff. So specifically with this article then, it starts off with section one. So there's six sections. Section one, introduction. And he goes into... Uh, the Galileo Project is a scientific search program for extraterrestrial objects near Earth. I co-founded the project in collaboration with Frank Lauken, I'm probably saying that, Lokian, maybe, um, in July 2021. Obviously, Frank, easy enough to pronounce, but Lokian, not so easy. Um, anyway, the project's name was inspired by Galileo Galilei's legacy of finding answers to fundamental questions by looking through new telescopes. The search is agnostic to the outcome. It represents a fishing expedition that could result in a mixed bag containing primarily, after the elimination of instrumental artifacts, one, natural objects like bugs, birds, comets, asteroids, rocky meteors or atmospheric phenomena, Two, human-made objects like weather balloons, drones, airplanes, rockets, spacecraft or satellites. Assembling high-quality data on the first category would be of interest to zoologists and planetary scientists. The second category would be of interest to national security agencies. But anything else would be of great scientific interest to the Galileo project. And this third category includes objects that appear to be of artificial origin, for example, showing screws or bolts in high-resolution images of their surface, but moving or interacting in ways that cannot be reproduced by current human-made devices. So this is what I love about the Galileo Project. It makes no bones about it. It's looking to eliminate all of the natural objects like bugs and birds and stuff because they're really only of interest to zoologists and scientists who are looking into you know that kind of thing. They're looking to eliminate man-made objects like balloons, drones, planes and stuff like that because that's only really of interest to national security agencies. Anything else is of great interest to the Galileo project. You know, you know, it, it did make me chuckle a bit how he says showing screws or bolts in high definition. I'm sure he's saying that tongue-in-cheek because it's likely that if these kind of objects are as advanced as we think they are, they're pretty unlikely to have screws and bolts on show, aren't they? But yeah, I think he's making a point there rather than being literal. And But I just love how the Galileo Project's whole mission, you know, isn't like coming from an assumption that it's probably going to be, you know, a prosaic explanation. They're actually setting out in the first place to try and eliminate all that other stuff so they can find actual data on things that, and not the prosaic explanations. What more could you ask for? And point two is in search for technological interstellar objects. And it goes on to say, extraterrestrial equipment could arrive in two forms. 
defunct space trash, similar to the way our own spacecraft will appear in a billion years, or functional equipment, such as autonomous craft equipped by artificial intelligence. The latter would be a natural choice for crossing the tens of thousands of light years that span the scale of the Milky Way galaxy, and could exist even if the senders are not alive to transmit any detectable signals at this time. And that's just so interesting, I mean, the way that that's worded there, because he's talking about like different ways that that non-human technology might end up being, you know, may end up arriving here on the earth for us to observe. And, and one of those ways is that just junk, you know, like you launch a satellite, there may be some debris coming from that satellite, like a booster rocket or something that just, you know, generally we set them so that they plunge into the ocean. But sometimes they may float off into space. And what happens if another non-human intelligence somewhere out there, wherever it may be, has done that and we can detect some remnants of that junk technology, essentially? Really interesting to think. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a manned craft that have flown here to check us out and they've got biological entities on board. You might just find you know, some, some space trash and it might just plummet into the ocean or something. It might just fly by. It might have no interest in us. It might not even be under any kind of control. But I love that they're keeping the options open in that regard. And obviously the the, the second choice is talking about uh, autonomous craft equipped by artificial intelligence. And it says obviously there the, the latter would be a natural choice for crossing the tens of thousands of light years. And it could exist even if the senders are not alive to transmit any detectable signals. Really interesting thought. I mean, we send out space probes and, you know, various uh, different kind of vehicles off into the universe. And there comes a point where they, we can't communicate with them anymore. And they might still be going on, on the path out there into the abyss. And, um, you know, at some point down the line, we're probably going to have artificial intelligence controlled craft that we send out to relay signals back to us. And if we get wiped out by some kind of cataclysm, the, the artificial intelligence controlled craft are going to continue on their paths out there into the abyss, aren't they? And maybe somebody will discover those at some point. And it could be that there's another, you know, some kind of intelligence that's existed maybe even a billion years ago. And they may have sent out AI probes. And perhaps, you know, it's a scary thought, isn't it, to think that something like the Tic Tac could have been an AI probe sent out by some kind of a a non-human intelligence but that non-human intelligence sadly was wiped out by a cataclysm of their own it could have been you know 25 million years ago you know just to put a random number on it it could have been a hundred million years ago it could have been a billion or several billion years ago that there was a you know an incredibly advanced civilization somewhere out there and they sent out these probes and then they're no more but the probes continue on it's kind of almost a hopeless message isn't it like i i think often when i think about you know whatever it is the, these craft these objects these technologies that are being detected it's almost like there's a hope behind it where you think well you know perhaps this would mean that we could you know contact another intelligence other than just humans and prove that you know we're not alone but it, it's a kind of sobering thought to think that some of these craft may represent a long gone civilization you know, it's kind of haunting. Anyway, moving on from that, the 
it goes into a little bit of uh, an explanation about some of the objects that have been detected so far, which are basically interstellar objects that have come from outside of our solar system, etc. And it talks about, number one, the first interstellar meteor, and that was detected on January the 8th, 2014, by US government sensors. It was actually near Papua New Guinea, and um, it was about half a meter in size, and it exhibited material strength tougher than iron, it was basically an unusual object because of the speed and essentially it was it was it was within the fastest 5% of uh, velocity distribution of all stars in the vicinity of the sun and its material strength uh, representing less than 5% of all space rocks so it was quite an unusual object for various reasons and this object actually plunged into the ocean I have talked about this on the podcast before. The Galileo Project are actually planning to to launch an expedition to actually retrieve the fragments of that meteor from the ocean floor to be able to study it. And really interestingly, Avi actually puts in the article here, um, in an attempt to determine the composition and structure of this unusual object and study whether or not it was natural or artificial in origin. So again, you know, actively trying to identify which objects are entering our our planet our our you know atmosphere and trying to actually go and find the ones that seem really unusual and figuring out whether or not they could potentially be natural or artificial in origin in other words made by non-human hands number two was the unusual inter interstellar object Oumuamua which was discovered by the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii on October the 19th, 2017. And this object was pushed away from the sun by an excess force that declined inversely with distance squared, but showed no evidence for cometary gases, which would be an indication of, of like a rocket effect where um, the actual there may be sort of ice or something like that on the surface of one of these objects which then gets evaporated by the heat of the sun and can push an object and Oumuamua didn't actually display that and it seems that it's quite an unusual motion considering that that was the case and another object which showed a similar pattern of movement a similar sort of um, characteristics which was an object named 2020 SO and that exhibited an excess push with no cometary tail as well. That was discovered by the same telescope in September 2020. And that was later actually identified as a rocket booster, which was launched by NASA in 1966, which was being pushed by uh, reflecting sunlight from the thin walls of the object itself. And the Galileo project uh, aims to design a space mission that would actually rendezvous with the next Oumuamua type object and get high quality data that would actually allow the Galileo project to figure out where it's come from, what its origins are, etc. And that's just so fascinating to me. Oumuamua was kind of frustrating because it was, you know, a very, very unusual object. I think at the time it was actually described as the first interstellar object that we were able to positively identify. Um, but then down the line, it actually turned out that there was uh, the other object that I mentioned earlier, uh, point number one, actually was, was detected earlier than Oumuamua, but they weren't able to access the data because it was held by government agencies. So 
Oumuamua was initially thought to be the first interstellar object, but actually turned out down the line that it, it wasn't. Um, but anyway, the point is, it was discovered when it was it had already gone past the closest point of observation, and it was on its way off into the abyss again. And what Avi Loeb's talking about here is tr to try to actually. Uh, they're actually going to try and develop software that can identify targets of interest out of uh, data from the Legacy Survey of Space and Time from the Vera C. Rubin Observatory and design a mission to actually go and rendezvous with an object. I mean, that's so fascinating to think that we can even do that as, as humans, you know, pick out a, a rock flying towards us out, out of the abyss and, and go and check it out. You know, how amazing is that? And uh, again, it outlines how, how interesting the Galileo project really is. They've got some lofty goals. Avi Loeb recently said that they've got a few million dollars of funding, but really what he wants is over $100 million of funding to really achieve what he wants to achieve. Fair play to him. He can't say he's not got ambition. But he, he rightly points out as well that that's actually a relatively small sum when you, when you compare it to things like the Large Hadron Collider, which is you know billions um, it's actually a small sum comparatively to compared to other other scientific efforts. And anyway, it goes into number three uh, object that that's been discovered as as an interstellar object, which is the interstellar comet two I Borisov, which was discovered on August twenty ninth, two thousand and nineteen, by the amateur astronomer. Gennady V. Borisov, hence the name, and this object resembles other comets found within the solar system and was definitely natural in origin because it was easily identified because of the uh, the characteristics of it, unlike the first two, which were definitely unusual. And Avi says, it's intriguing that two out of the first three interstellar objects appear to be outliers relative to familiar solar system asteroids or comets. And it's a very good point. You know, so far they can identify three definite interstellar objects that have come from outside of our solar system. And out of those three, two of them were very unusual compared to what you would expect. Okay, one of them, the one detected by the uh, the amateur astronomer that I mentioned there, number three, it, it, you know, looked pretty much like what you would expect. But the first two had very unusual characteristics which have led some to speculate that they may, may be actually artificial in origin anyway the article then goes on to talk about uh, number three cosmic perspective and it says and this is a really interesting paragraph so i'm going to read it out in full even though it's a bit long the chance of finding a civilization at exactly our technological phase is small roughly one part in a hundred million the ratio between the age of modern science and the age of the oldest stars in the milky way most likely we would encounter civilizations that are either way behind or way ahead of our scientific knowledge. To find the former class, we would need to visit the jungles of exoplanets, natural environments similar to those which occupied by which were occupied by primitive human cultures over most of the past million years. This task would require a huge amount of effort and time given our current propulsion technologies. Chemical rockets take at least 40,000 years to reach the nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, which is four light years away. Their speed is 10,000 times slower than the speed of light, implying a travel time of half a billion years across the Milky Way disk. 
But if the most advanced scientific civilization started their scientific endeavor billions of years ago, we may not need to go anywhere since their equipment may have already arrived at our cosmic neighborhood in the form of interstellar artifacts. In that case, all we need to do is become curious observers of our sky. So just really, really interesting. And, and uh, what I particularly like about that is it's something I've talked about quite a lot on the podcast in the past is what are the chances and I've often wondered if anybody who's done a mathematical calculation, somebody with a lot more sort of like um, ability to do that than I have, um, as to you know how likely would it be that they would be re- you know relatively close to, to humans in terms of the development? Because bearing in mind, you know, think about what 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 technology was like fifty years ago, and then think about what it's going to be like in another fifty years, and then take that further and think what technology is going to be like in a thousand years. You know, it literally becomes magic, doesn't it? Like, you know, if you'd have shown somebody an iPhone 50 years ago, they would have probably thought that was the work of the devil or something, you know, being a bit daft there, but you know what I mean. So when you think about if a civilization may have been roughly where we are now, yeah, a thousand years ago, a million years ago, the current level of technology that they would have we wouldn't even recognize it as technology. It would just seem like some kind of, you know, mi- miraculous magic, you know? And the, the the thing that I find really interesting here is that Avi actually talks about a specific, you know, probability of that. The chance of finding a civilization at exactly our technological phase is small, roughly one part in a hundred million. So think about that, one part in a hundred million. So it is overwhelmingly likely that whatever non-human intelligences that we come across would be way more advanced than us, way more. Either that or they would be, you know, relatively primitive compared to us. The chances that they'd be a similar level to us, very slim. Even more slim, I would suggest, when you consider that if they are at a similar level of development to us, they wouldn't have a way to get here. I mean, you know, just to put it in really simple terms, we can't get to them, so they probably can't get to us here either. And if they were able to get here, they're probably way ahead of us. And that that's just something to kind of keep in, in mind, I think, when we, when we look at these things. It's, it's almost quite frustrating because you think if they're that far ahead of us, we would have absolutely no chance of trying to understand it. I mean, it would be it would be the you know the old equivalent is if you if you took a laptop or an iPhone back to you know the fifteen hundreds, you know they would just not they wouldn't know where to start. You know the technology in that would just it, it would seem like mirac- miraculous magic. And you know even if you gave them a laptop and a phone, what could they really do with that? They wouldn't have a clue. You know it doesn't relate to anything, does it? They wouldn't have the internet. They wouldn't have you know, electric even, to be able to plug the thing in. They wouldn't certainly wouldn't have a cable to plug it in. What, what are you actually going to do with a phone if you don't have other phones you can communicate with? You know, so technology can, can make no sense if you, if, you, if you drop it into a completely, um, you know, isolated environment. And, and I think that's, you know, can explain why the UFO phenomenon is so confusing sometimes because that that's the equivalent it's like like i said somebody in the 1500s with a mobile phone you you couldn't really understand that no matter how you tried because you wouldn't have any context of to how it could be used anyway i'm not going to ramble on too much on that point but 
The next point, number four in the article, says the Galileo project represents a new research in initiative in astronomy. Existing astronomical observatories target objects at great distances and have a limited view of the sky, whereas the Galileo project aims to monitor the entire sky continuously and study fast-moving objects in the vicinity of the Earth. It is an astronomy project since it analyzes data obtained by telescopes and searches for objects that could have originated outside of the solar system. The project's novel observing strategy employs state-of-the-art cameras and computers that monitor the, the entire sky in the optical, infrared and radio bands, as well as in audio, magnetic field and energetic particle signals. And also, very interestingly, Satellite data allows to study UAP from above. This offers complementary opportunities to track their motion and image better than possible from ground-based telescopes. The Galileo project is engaged in studying satellite data sets that are publicly available. I mean, it goes without saying really because Avi Loeb is obviously such an intelligent individual with a, a you know incredibly strong background in science in general, but he's doing a cracking job. You know, he's building fantastic, you know, telescope setups. He's using not only just regular, you know, film photography, but he's going into the infrared radio as well. And then he's trying to corroborate that with satellite data from publicly available, um, you know, databases. And uh, doing all this with an open mind and, and, and a very strong, as we'll get into, commitment to being transparent with the public. Anyway... Number five, then, in the article, branches of activity and guiding principles. And it says, the Galileo Project has three branches of activity. Number one, constructing new telescope systems to infer the nature of unidentified aerial phenomena, similar to those mentioned in the ODNI report to the US Congress. So that's basically saying that they're going to build these telescope systems with very, very high-quality telescopes and cameras to be able to figure out the nature of UAP. Two, designing a space mission that will identify the nature of interstellar objects that do, that do not resemble comets or asteroids like Oumuamua. So that's what I was mentioning earlier. Literally designing a mission to go and actually check out anomalous objects that have come from outside of our solar system. Super interesting. And number three, coordinating expeditions to study the nature of interstellar meteors like CNEOS 2014. So again, that's what I was talking about earlier. If any of these interstellar objects land on the Earth, the Galileo project are going to go and actually find them and analyse them. I mean, I can't ask for more than that, to be honest with you. They're putting up fantastic sensor systems and trying to corroborate that with satellite data. On top of that, they're actually trying to design space missions to go out and actually check out some of these objects that are, that are flying past the Earth and then... If that wasn't enough, they're also trying to find any of these interstellar objects that can be identified that do land on the Earth, and they're going to go and actually retrieve them and analyse them. Brilliant stuff. And number six, then, is concluding remarks to finish off with. If the Galileo Project's search will find indisputable evidence for an object that is not natural or human-made, then this finding would be a teaching moment for humanity. It might provide a simple answer to Fermi's paradox. Where is everybody? In the form of, right here. Scientists have been searching for 60 years for radio signals from planets around distant stars, but they neglected to check systematically 
for interstellar objects in our own backyard. As different as the perspectives of the researchers and affiliates might be, every contributor to the Galileo project is bound by three ground rules. The Galileo project is only interested in openly available scientific data and a transparent analysis of it. Thus, classified, government-owned information which cannot be shared with all scientists cannot be used. Such information would compromise the scope of the scientific research program of the project, which is designed to acquire verifiable scientific data and provide transparent analysis of this data. The analysis of the data will be based solely on known physics and will not entertain fringe ideas about extensions to the standard model of physics. The data will be freely published and available for peer review as well as to the public when such information is ready to be made available. But the scope of the research efforts will always remain in the realm of scientific hypotheses tested through rigorous data collection and sound analysis. And to protect the quality of its scientific research, the Galileo research team will not publicize the details of its internal discussions or share the specifications of its experimental hardware or software before the work is finalized. The data or its analysis will be released through traditional, scientifically accepted channels of publication, validated through the traditional peer review process. The project has no commercial interests. I mean, again, some of this is quite long uh, read-throughs, but I'm just so interested in the Galileo project, and I think they're doing it the right way. I really want to get across how important, you know, the the way they're doing it actually is, because, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about government transparency. You know, there's a lot of talk about people being able to communicate with entities and seeing entities, and you don't need the government and all the rest of it. The Galileo project is like the perfect in between. You know, they're not looking at classified data, so in theory, all of it should be available to the public. They're trying to do this properly through, you know, scientific, academic, peer-reviewed papers that that can actually make a splash in the in the the academic science world. You know, if there was you know a better way of doing this kind of thing i can't really think of what that could be you know they're really nailing it and avi Loeb should be you know commended for what a great job he's done so far and just to finish off then final point here these telescopes are the new eyes and the computer system attached to them is the new brain of the galileo project watching the sky through new observatories is our best way to find out whether we have neighbors what we do with the answer depends on the details. As Robert Frost noted in his poem, The Road Not Taken, two roads diverged in, in a yellow wood. I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. There is a great advantage to taking the road not taken. If there is any low-hanging fruit along that path, the Galileo project will harvest it. So huge respect for Avi Loeb, really, really an, an area that I'm closely keeping an eye on. I think often it, it does get a bit overlooked because I think Avi Loeb is taking the, he's doing things the absolute right way, but sometimes it does take a bit of time before you see any results. Bearing in mind it's been going for a year and there's not really been any huge bombshell announcements or anything like that. And sometimes it can be, you know, the instant gratification of 
you know the dod in you know in the us saying right we've got we've announced this task force and you know there's new legislation going through with all this exciting language in it and you know people post ufo videos and oh this could be the smoking gun video and things like that it's easy to get excited about those kind of things in a way because of the instant gratification but it's so reassuring to see avi Loeb just plodding away slowly but surely on this right path of, of of going down this this road and it's going to be really interesting over the next year to start seeing you know potentially some results actually coming through from this and um yeah an area that i'll continue to keep a close eye on and uh as i said nothing but respect for avi Loeb for doing this what i consider to be the right way so there we go that rounds up a, a slightly longer recent events episode for for this week I do hope you've enjoyed listening to to the show. If you've stuck around to right at the end here, you really are a hardcore listener because you've made it an hour and 20 minutes in. So thank you very much. As always with these episodes, you know, I'm no expert. I'm not a physicist. I'm not, you know, I've never even seen a UFO myself, but I'm just really interested in this. I think it throws up big questions about everything, literally. You know, there couldn't be a bigger question, could there? Uh, are we alone in the universe? what is behind this mystery of ufos that have been seen throughout human history i'm just trying to make sense of it you know and hopefully in the process of myself trying to make sense of it i can help you know spread a little bit of of what i've made sense of and perhaps it helps other 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 folks as well so thank you for for tuning in and um if you want to support the work that i do on the podcast here um, and help me to branch out because I've got big plans for the future of YouTube and, and all kinds of other things maybe even a bit of a documentary film we'll see what the future brings but if you do want to support the uh, the growth of, of what I'm doing here and help me to keep it ticking over I have a Patreon page and so thank you very much for all the Patreon supporters I really appreciate you guys and uh, anybody who's not already signed up there you can jump on patreon.com forward slash UFO thinker and it just starts at a couple of pounds a month. You get early access to episodes, special bonus like episodes that are only on Patreon as well as a bit of a, a way of giving back to those who support on Patreon. And um, as I say, a couple of pounds a month, you can cancel any time. And I really, really appreciate the support. Thanks for all who choose to do so. And if you don't choose to do so, not a problem. It's always going to be free to listen to the podcast. And um, I really appreciate everybody who tunes in. So thank you very much. Until next time, stay curious, take it easy, and I'll catch you in the next episode. You are so